Welcome to Killer Women with your host, best-selling author, Danielle Girard. And now, Danielle's next killer woman. Hello, and welcome to Killer Women Podcast, a proud member of the Authors on the Air Global Network with more than 4 million listeners. I am your host, suspense author Danielle Girard, and my guest today is Angie Kim. Angie moved as a preteen from Seoul, South Korea to the suburbs of Baltimore. After graduating from Interlochen Arts Academy, she studied philosophy at Stanford University and attended Harvard Law School. I always have to think you're just such a dummy, Angie, um, <laughs> where she was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. Her debut novel, Miracle Creek, won the Edgar Award, the ITW Thriller Award, the Strand Critics Award, and the Pinkley Prize, and was named one of the best books of the year by Time, The Washington Post, Kyrgyz Reviews, and The Today Show. Angie lives in Northern Virginia with her family. Welcome, Angie. Thank you so much for having me, Danielle. I am so excited to be talking to you. I, feel I like know. I wrote this book, like our... I wrote this book staring at your face half of the time. So I know, I know that's so true. We had, <laughs> um, for other people who don't know exactly what that means, we did this alone together during the pandemic where we would get on our computers and write and then we would take breaks and chat. And so we, uh, on our computers in the background, you could see everybody um, working on their book. And I have heard, so I had heard so much about Happiness Falls and, and in its early iterations and as you were going through the process of working with a new editor and all this stuff and Angie, I, I had high expectations of course because you're brilliant, but this novel just really blew me out of the water. I get a little teary to think about um, this family and what they're going through and, and just all the stuff. So, and there's a lot to unpack without any, any spoilers, but will you just tell our listeners about Happiness Falls? Yes. Um, thank you so much for that love. That so makes good. me so happy, especially coming from another author who's writing I really love and admire. So thank oh, you so much. Thank for that, you. Danielle. Happiness Falls is a story about a family in crisis. Um, at the beginning of the story, this biracial Korean American family, um, their father, Adam, has gone missing. And the only person who might know what happened to him is 14-year-old Eugene, who can't tell the police or the family anything because he's a non-speaker. He has a rare genetic condition called Angelman syndrome and a dual diagnosis with autism, and he can't talk. And so the entire family really has to come together to learn to communicate and really connect with one another and to really get to know one another, including the father, in order to figure out what might have happened to him. Yeah. And it's tell us about the point of view character, because I really love this. Um, you know, it's getting into Mia's head and she's a young woman in college. And, and yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Thank you so much. So the 14-year-old uh, witness, non-speaker Eugene, his two older siblings are Mia and John, who are both 20, and they're fraternal twins, and they're home fr from college, uh, reluctantly from, yes. because it's it takes place in the beginning of the pandemic. It is not at, at all a pandemic novel, but it just know that it, it is set during that time. 
Um, Mia is, I love her so much. Um, Me too. Is, oh, I'm so mm. happy. She's so very, much. She's a very voicey voice. She mm -hmm. is opinionated. She is funny. She is, uh, I don't know that she means to be funny, but she is yes. dry wit. She is hyper analytical. She's an overthinker. She oh my God. Yeah. knows that she can be really annoying to people sometimes. She's so smart and she's curious about the world and she's so curious about everything, including, you know, music and algorithms and science and genetics and the way that our brains work and Vulcan mind melds and so yeah. many things. And I just, I love her and the because of the missing person, you know, uh, mystery, this is, of course, a mystery. And there is a mystery that hopefully sucks readers right in and wants, keeps you wanting to turn the pages. But I describe the mystery element as almost a Trojan horse, because I hope that once you're kind of sucked in and you want to keep reading to figure out what happened to the father, that you'll just sort of let... Mia kind of talk to you about all the things that are on her mind, which includes yes. the family, but so many other things. She is, I actually think she's a little, there's a little of me and her and a little of you and her because she is such a thinker and everything that happens, she just spins and spins. And one of the things I, one of the devices we talked about is that were the footnotes, right? I mean, as you were writing this, there are these um and you I love the way you describe it right from the beginning you're like you know she, basically Mia comes out and tells you I I think a lot about a lot of things and sometimes I think I you know I segue off topic into something else and so I, I'll put these in you know in footnotes so you can dig in and of course I did not miss a single footnote but you she also gives you the option that if you just want to get onto the story you can you can um skip my footnotes but I love the I love the, re the relationship between her you know her the sort of twins who are different sex twins right and the and the dynamic of that and the dynamic of being an adult coming home like you said uh, reluctantly because of what's going on in the world and and besides that fact yeah there's nothing in this book that made it feel like the pandemic and I actually forgot I you know I didn't think about the pandemic at all which you know, maybe we're going to dig into that more. And I mean, authors will dig into that more as we get further away. But for now, I'm good with not thinking too much about that still. It's still, um, you know, damage to that. So talk about Eugene, because I think a, a lot of this book really does focus, focus on this 14 year old who up until now really has not had any way to, to communicate with, with anyone. And when we start to learn about him, we can appreciate how incredibly awful and sad and lonely that existence would be. Yeah, um, I just, I love Eugene so much. Um, so he is 14, he has not, um, he, he can't speak, like I said. And I have a little bit of an, a personal insight into what that would be like. I mean, in a way, it's a really horrible comparison. I feel guilty even making it because what I went through is so tiny and limited compared to what these non-speakers go through. Um, but I think I became- but it, it opened your compassion to them. So. Exactly. I appreciate yeah. what you're saying and I don't, I know you're not making a direct comparison, but I do want you to tell the story because I think this is really powerful. 
Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I have an author's note about this in the back, but so I came, uh, I'm a Korean immigrant. I came from Seoul, to South Korea to the US when I was 11 in middle school and I couldn't speak any English. And so I went sort of overnight from feeling like a smart girl with, you know, good grasp on the language. I was very, uh, you know, uh, gregarious and lots of friends to all of a sudden not being able to talk at all. And there is such a huge fundamental assumption in our society, not just American, like the entire world over. And so it was in me as well that equates oral fluency verbal fluency with intelligence. So if you can't speak for whatever reason that has nothing to do with your cognitive functioning, you feel stupid and you feel ashamed and embarrassed. And I certainly felt that way in middle school, which is a horrible time to be feeling this way to begin with. And then when I got to the point where I could understand English, um, I still, I, 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 but I still, still couldn't speak it very well. I got to see that people were indeed making fun of me because when, you know, when people see that you don't speak the language, they just assume that you can't understand. So they talk about you in front of you, which is a particularly humiliating experience. Yes. So, and so that just kind of opened, you know, my, um, sort of, uh, it, it made me kind of obsessed with the idea of this idea of why do we as a society equate oral fluency with intelligence? We know for a fact that there are tons of people who, you know, for whatever reason can't speak or they stutter or they right. the language or they have accents or whatever. And we just assume that that must mean that they're stupid. And so um, go, you know, so then fast forward to when I'm a mom and I have um, good friends with, ch uh, with children who are non-speakers, who are diagnosed with the so-called nonverbal autism. And everyone thought, including their parents, including their teachers, their doctors, everybody thought that they just didn't have any words inside of them, thus the label nonverbal, right? No words. Um, and, you know, thought that they couldn't understand and certainly couldn't write or read or anything like that. And then come to find out that some of these children um, who are kids that I myself know yeah. start working with therapists on um, a spelling therapy where they like take, you know, large boards with few letters on them and then learn to sort of control their motor skills in order to be able to point to letters one by one in a very painstaking process and thereby learn to communicate. Right. It is just, it was unbelievable. And when they started doing that, this, which is a really, really hard thing for them to do because they have motor issues, which is one of the reasons why they can't talk because oral motor right. is like the right. finest of fine motors. It's right. And so when they started uh, communicating in this in, in this way, we found that they were, they were coming out with these beautiful messages and it turned out they could they could 
read all along. They had these complicated thoughts. They were picking up lessons from the side and they were kind of like locked in. Uh, yeah. It just floored me. And so um, I started writing this book. I did a lot of research. I met a lot of these non-speakers. I, in fact, actually teach creative writing to a bunch of non-speakers. Good for you. Um, yeah, some um, virtual and some um, in-person. In fact, uh, Happiness Falls, it was named um, Good Morning America's Good Book, uh, book Club pick last week. Congratulations. And, thank you. And so that was on Tuesday, pub day. And then on Wednesday, Juju Chang and the entire GMA crew came down to the Northern Virginia area. And we did a taping all day at the school, at the therapy center. And um, and Juju Chang, like you're going to see this. I think it's airing September 22nd. And she like, it was talking, she was like conversing with, you know, um, with these students of mine. And so, you know, they would point to letter by letter and she was serving a scribe. So she wrote down the messages one by one, read them out loud, and then, you know, and then said what her comment was back. It was just the most incredible thing. She was like near tears. Yeah. And it was unbelievable. It was, yeah. I feel like the camera guys were in tears too. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Yeah. It's so powerful. I mean, it's even like we do this to all sorts of groups, like even people who are sort of more introverted, we discount because voices and you think about our politics and our, everything is about who's kind of the loudest, the biggest. I mean, and of course, like anybody who can't stand up and just shout at the top of the their lungs, what they want, need, whatever, gets discounted. So it's a really powerful story. I'm trying to remember because of course, like I said, we worked, I mean, we were working sort of, and we've, we've had retreats together and worked, we yeah. do work in this book. And I can't remember, was Mia, was it always Mia from the beginning? She, yes. how did you find her? Like, do you remember sort of how she, she oh, totally. arrived? So, yeah, Mia's voice has been with me for 13 years, I guess. So I started writing in my 40s. And in uh, 2010, maybe 2011, I started writing a short story um, and about this family. And it was, and they were a little bit younger. So Mia and John were um, teenagers and they were kind of really resentful of their non speaking little brother who was taking up all of the attention and all of the money in the family. And, um, but they also felt really, really guilty because the backstory on this family is that um, the twins kind of did something, a prank when the mom was pregnant with Eugene and they feel guilty. They feel like they caused his voice to kind of leak out of his body. So this short story was about them when they were living in Korea and, um, and they're, the twins are literally going around this Korean <laughs> a graveyard looking for his voice. Like, Oh, yeah. Experiments to try to find it. Anyway, that story was written in Mia's voice, and I just loved yeah voice. It's just 
it's a voice that sticks with you. I'm not sure where it came from, but it was funny to me and um it had an attitude. I'm sure it's a it's a lot of it is me probably. <laughs> you know, and a lot of it is um my sort of more sassy kids when they were that age. And so all of those things combined together and I and this family and this voice has been with me ever since. It was published in 2013 so so you know like 10 years ago right and um and i just i couldn't let this family go i would sort of think about them like when i would hear about uh therapies for non-speakers i would be like oh i wonder if they're trying that for eugene i wonder what's going on mm -hmm. and i would be wondering like oh i wonder if they heard about this thing happening in the dc area you know because i knew right. that they um back to move back moved back to the DC area. And so I would just be thinking about them. And when my kids were going through, you know, college admissions and all of mm -hmm. that sort of stuff, I would sort of think like, I wonder how Mia and John are doing. Even though like I right. know they're, they're right. you know, they're not real people, but still it kind they, of like you know, they they were like hooked into my into my brain. Yeah. They st they stick with you, and I I do think there's an I mean it's, and it comes up of course for with Mia, although the the kids are incredible with Eugene, but of course there is that sense, you know that sort of the, the shame of feeling like, what would life be like without Eugene, right? How much easier would it be? And also of course how much we love Eugene, and then you know as the book goes on, there's other sources of you know discovery and shame, and um it gets you know it's complicated it as this is for any parent, any family who's dealing with somebody who has a disability, right? Yeah, um, that it that it really, the, what it requires. And then to have the dad go missing um, just puts the, so much pressure, especially since he was the stay-at-home parent at that time. So it puts so much pressure on, um, on the situation. So it's beautifully done. So let's talk about the happiness quotient a little bit. Um, yeah. Um, so basically, and I'll let you explain it. There's this, they don't, the kids don't know much about this. It's something that um, the dad, Adam, was working on. But can you explain it a little to us? Because it just goes, yeah. also speaks to your brain and also to this family. I, I really love that. So Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that happens is that they find a notebook uh, of the dad, Um and they find it in sort of a mysterious circumstance. So I won't, I won't uh, spoil that for, you know, but they do find it and it's, um, and it has all this stuff about happiness theories that the dad was working on that the family didn't know about. And um, it's interesting because the dad had this theory about the relativity of happiness and how happiness is doesn't just derive from what you experience, but it's kind of your experience compared to your expectations mm -hmm. and also your baseline. So like what you consider to be your baseline. So, you know, this kind of um, explains why, for example, um, those happiness studies that say that a silver medalist is often... Um, much more unhappy, much sadder and more depressed than the bronze medalist because the bronze medalist is happy that they just like 
on the podium. Medal, yeah. You know, got on the podium. Yeah. Whereas the silver medalist is like, oh, if only I had done this or that, maybe I would have gotten the gold, you know, that type of thing. Right. The fourth place finisher is always like, you know, really, really upset. And so there are all these types of studies that seem kind of confusing at first, like lottery, uh, people who win the lottery, like a year after the lottery, they're no happier as a group than people who a year before were in horrible accidents and became paraplegics. And you're like, how can that possibly be? And so the dad is trying to make sense of it, trying to quantify things and trying to see if his insights into um, lowering expectations and lowering the way you think of the baseline of your life, if that can actually make you happier. And so he does all these experiments and he's been doing them on the children and the family without them, you know, knowing about it. So of course, one of the questions is, is this disappearance, like, is the whole thing an experiment? Yeah. Right. Right. Of course. Yes. Um, and it's interesting. So what brought you to that question? Because I think that was a big sort of it was the nonverbal thing and this and the happiness thing that sort of came together initially to create this book. Yes. And I think I I think I showed the showed you this Venn diagram that I had that had three circles. I remember the that Top circle. I'm looking at it right now. The top circle is Adam the father going missing. So this, it's the missing person mystery. And then there's another intersecting circle that is this voice fluency. And then another circle that is this happiness quotient idea and where they all overlap in the middle is, you know, sort of hopefully the ending of the book and the heart of the book. Right. And so the happiness, the relativity of happiness thing is something that I've just been obsessed with like my entire life. Um, I think it comes from the fact that, again, when I was an immigrant and how our lives in Korea were, it, it was just, we were so poor that we um, were told that we were going to be so happy coming to the U.S. Like, I remember my friends when we found out that we were immigrating to the U.S. being like, oh, it's like you won the lottery. Because, like, we didn't have TVs, we didn't have we didn't have running water, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So it was a hard life from that perspective, but I also remember being so happy because I was just in my place. I loved my community. I loved my neighborhood and I just, it, and I had my family and my parents. And then we came to the U S and even though I got like, you know, uh, my own bathroom for the first time, I had never seen the shower um, you know, microwave, refrigerators, all the color TVs, all these things that I had never had before, my own bed, my own bedroom, all these things that I gained um, that should have made me happier. And I was told that it would make me happier. And yet I was miserable, yeah. you know, like yeah. not speaking English. Um, my parents um, had to work in this dangerous neighborhood. My dad was shot. He was fine, but he, you know, like all these things that just right. so much stress. And so I've, I think I've been thinking about sort of objective versus subjective notions of <laughs> happiness for a long <laughs> time. And I studied philosophy in college. So of course, and, and psychology too. So it's just the intersection of all these things just made me so fascinated. And I remember hearing about this lottery winner study 
and yeah being, and that being like oh that rings a bell because I had heard that you know you it's like you won the lottery and how that did not make me happy right so just me think about how is there something that we can do and I wanted to work it out for myself and I think I tend to write when I don't know the answer to something, when I sure. want to try to figure it out. And so I thought, all right, well, I'll give this to this problem to one of my characters. And that way I can sort of figure this out for myself. And, you know, and it can be sort of an interesting through line for this family too. Yeah, it's really powerful. And I think it's a really good, and I think we all know this to be true, that I think there is a sort of, we're always better off with lower expectations of everything, right? Like if we, if we lower our expectations then we can be pleasantly surprised or we can just get what we expect, right? It's versus being disappointed um, by things and, and having it really rock us when, you know, it's just life, right? It's just the way it ha things happen, so. It is, but you also have to be really kind of careful because as the dad points out, he was like, yeah, if I try to lower expectations so much, then, that can actually be a bummer in and of itself. Like sure. trying to lower your expectations for tomorrow and telling yourself and your family, like, wow, tomorrow's going to suck. This trip's going <laughs> to suck. Right. Like, that's going to kind of be a bummer today. Yeah. You know? So it's going to ruin your today. So, so that's why the dad like sort of thinks about all this and decides, you know what? I think the key is to keep your expectations high, to be excited, to be hopeful, but then at the same time, just remember that you're the baseline of your life to keep that low. You're, the way that you think about sort of what your life should be as low as possible so that you can enjoy the things that you have and, you know, and not take it for granted. Sort of, you know, so um, with this book coming out, like not sort of going like, oh, well, my baseline is like, I have, you know, this um, book that won awards and things like that. No, but to be like, no, my baseline is back when I didn't have an agent. I didn't have an editor. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I hadn't sold a book. I didn't know how my books were going to be received by people. I didn't have like, you know, I, I, just yes. didn't, I didn't have those reviews and to so I can I can still hope and I can still, you know, um, like have have expectations that people will hopefully love this book and, you know, kind of like enjoy those fantasies and dreams and things like that that I might have. But at the same time, remind myself constantly like that is not where I started. And right. I sort of my baseline is, is the person who was like crying to you, you know, three years ago going like, I don't know if I can finish this book. I have no idea what happened to this father. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I know. But that's actually good for people to hear too, because I do think like you've had incredible and are having incredible success, but really, really, I mean, Angie, the reason you're having it besides being really bright obviously is that you are in that little closet and angie's in a closet right now uh, you can't you don't know that but i know that she's in a closet yes. that's her writing space in this place that normally doesn't have wi-fi or anything um and she's in there like you know 18 hours a day um for stretches of time and you really like 
you do, you show that it really is a lot of hard work um, to create a book that is so powerful and nuanced. And, um, and you worked at it, like, like you said, three years, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Was it only three years? It feels like it's so much longer than three well, years. Well, when did, ha- when did uh, Miracle Creek come out? 2019 2019 yeah so four it's four years between books and so you were obviously starting this book when that was coming out so yeah it's a it is it's a huge commitment and and also it sort of like reminds us that the idea of writing a book in a year is kind of preposterous I know we're supposed to do that or at least some of us are supposed to do that but um you were like no way that's not happening I'm gonna the book I'm gonna write is gonna take me longer than that and I think it's worth the wait. It's so, I was just, I was absolutely floored. And I do, I just absolutely love Mia. I always tag things. Um, and I want you to explain this word, Jong. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, Jung. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jung. Because I think yeah. it's actually kind of a beautiful concept that we, you said it's, well, Mia explains to me that we don't have it in English. Can you yeah. explain it, Jess? Yeah, it's a Korean word, and it sort of describes this um, solidarity and connection that people have. And it's, um, you know, people use it to talk about family connection, how it's just there, even if you may not want it sometimes. <laughs> it's just it binds you and Koreans use it a lot to talk about the Korean national solidarity, especially like during the war and the Japanese um, uh, occupation and, you know, all of those things just to sort of say we are a people and we're bound together in this like kind of almost mystical way. Yeah. So it is talking about that. And Mia talks about it with respect to her siblings that no Mm. matter no matter what, it 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 is there. It's there as a foundational thing, you know. Yeah. And this connection that they have, and she and John, the twin, even if they used to be really close, they're no longer. You know, they're kind of in that high school, college, you know, kind of annoyed with each other kind of thing. Yeah. But even so they, you know, I mean, you see everything that happens, and then they just come together. They just have to. And then their old connections, which, you know, they used to like go around pretending to mind meld with each other like Vulcans when they were little. And they kind of do a similar thing because that's what they you revert back to the things that comfort you, you know? Yeah. Especially in times of crisis. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful word. I feel like there's, I feel like it's really lovely. I mean, the, the, the mom, you know, her sort of struggles and, I mean, it's the, everybody has their, you know, and, and Eugene, we get to understand, you know, in the book as well. And I think that's a big, that, and, and Adam, like you said, even though he's gone and we never actually meet him on the page because he's already gone when the book starts, we, we get the sense, we get to know who he is and who these people are and their family unit is pretty amazing, right? I mean, if you think about what they're, what they have survived, what they're surviving together, um, it's a beautiful story. And, you know, Angie, if you haven't read Miracle Creek, is also just a beautiful writer. And um, I'm actually starting, I'm working on a rewrite right now for my surrogate book, Angie, which you know about. And it is, I was like, I'm so intimidated now to sit at the screen after reading Angie's book. I'm like, I, just, oh. <laughs> I, need, I need Angie to sit here for a few minutes and like oh. think for me. So it's, but I mean, in, in the best way, like I was yeah. 
Um, But I just, I really, it is, you know, I've read a lot of books and this is definitely a top book for me for 2023. It's just amazing, Angie. So. So much, Danielle. And I, I, well, you earned it, girl. And I hate to do this because I feel like it's so unfair, but um, what are you working on? I'm not working on anything right now. I was working yeah. on something and I, I still am. It's going in the back of my mind. Um, mm-hmm. but you and I have talked about this, how much I love linked stories. And I think this next one that I'm thinking of is a kind of a linked story of sorts. Um, mm-hmm. there's, it's really, really high premise. So I'm not going to, or what is that called? High premise? Wait, no. Um, no, I know what you're saying. Like a big, um, like a big idea. Yeah, like the yeah. Idea. What is it called? Um, high concept. A concept. High concept. Exactly. <laughs> Here we are, the writers with no words. Yeah, I know. It's what's wrong with us. Yeah. Well, um, you have an yeah, excuse. But, yeah. But, yeah. So it's uh yeah. So it is a high concept. So I'm not really describing it. I won't even. Yeah. I haven't even like told my. I I don't even know who there is to tell. But I I I'm not telling anyone about fair, it. Fair. Fair. Because it's one of these things that with this book, with Happiness Falls, I told everybody about it. Yeah. And I felt like when I came back later, people were like, wait, I thought you were, I thought it was going to be this. I thought it right. was called that. And, and I was like, you know what, next book, I'm going to try just writing without telling people and see where that goes. And yeah. Yeah. You know? I mean, they do say like, right. There's, we had, there's like a mixed message about it. I think sometimes you you have to talk about, or at least I have to talk about it. But there is also that idea that if you talk about it too much, you sort of spread the magic and you need to keep the magic close to kind of drive the story. So it is, um, it is tricky. I mean, um, and when we went to that, you know, when we were in Ocean City together, um, it, it was like this idea that sort of we could, you know, this mutual magic. And it's kind of a lovely thing, those writers retreats where you're working like like really alone but together it's um I love that I I know that's one of my favorite things I I know that once my tour is over just to like jump start you know doing something really working on this next book I'm actually really kind of intensely missing writing as much yeah about how much I hate writing and all that kind of stuff you know when And we always say like, oh, I hate like writing, but I love having written. Yeah. um, You know, and I, and there is something to that, but there is just something so wonderful just about working out a story and, and that magical moment when you like, when you finish a scene and you're happy with it and you reread it the next day, like over coffee or maybe at night over a martini or (laughs) and then, and you just read it and yeah, you're making like little edits here and there, whatever, but like just that pride of like, wow, I did this today, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I'm really, really missing that. And I'm missing just reading for pleasure. Yeah. I really can't wait to sort of get back to back to that as much as I'm loving this whole, you know, like talking to people about happiness falls and just kind of for a little bit, just the, just being done and, you know, not having any pressure for right now, but still. Yeah. Really, really want to get back. Well, I think, I mean, you are, we are writers, right? So when we don't write for a little bit, it feels like a break. And when we don't write for a long bit, it feels totally wrong. Is there anything you would say to 
you know, women or anybody who is like, you know, starting their first book in their forties and thinking this is a thing I want to do. Any advice? So this is, you know, this is something that I tell all of my students, but I don't know how applicable it is to everybody because everybody's different. Yeah. But um, for me, I really love that I started with short stories. And mm -hmm. Danielle, I know that you have an MFA. So obviously you did a lot of short stories in grad school too. I've but... never written a short story, Angie. Seriously? Is that Seriously. true? How Never well, that's not, that. that's not true. I did write one, but I wrote it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not, I know. I, I don't know. And I think you're right. It is probably a really smart way. Um, but it, yeah, I've never done it. Well, only because I feel like, you know, because you did get an MFA. So you had like those two years or whatever, when you were like intensely working on writing. Yes. I feel like a lot of people, when they say like oh I have an idea for a novel I have a book in me or whatever they don't really know what that entails right and I feel like working on a short story even though I do think that sometimes short stories are harder than longer books because, yeah yeah you know, that's why I never did it involved right yeah but, yeah but still like just the craft of like figuring out the arc of a story a character you know the yeah arc of a character and also the process of like writing something, showing it to other people, workshopping it, and mm -hmm. then rewriting it, and then doing that like seven times, you know? Right. And I mean, that's like intense for a 20-page story. It's yeah. like unmanageable for me, you know, almost for novels that are like 400 pages long. So I just think that it's a good way to just see if it is all you think it is. Right. Because you really have to love the process, I think. You yes. have to love editing. You have to love revising. You have to be okay with like having people tell you, you know, I don't understand this. Or yeah. like, why did you have this character do this stupid thing? Or you right. know, whatever it is. Right. And then getting and then sending it out to literary right. magazines right. and getting those rejections. I feel like that is so important. And some people are going to try that and be like, this sucks. And I'm not yeah. going to ever do this. And yeah. Better to find out with a short story. I think than yes. like a 300 page book, you know, it's true. And there's a lot of like, you can learn a lot from the structure of a short story that it is really overwhelming. I mean, one of the things I did you know, horribly in the beginning, of course, was described like every single moment of every single day of every single character. And you don't need that, right? It's get in at the last minute, get out at the first opportunity. Um, and I think that is something really, I mean, I wish I, in hindsight, I wish I'd done that. I don't remember exactly the thought process in, in not doing it, but I'm a typical overwriter. So I would have my short, my 20, 000, you know, 20 page short story would have been 65 pages. And so oh, it was, is. It, yeah, it, uh, my short stories absolutely are. And then yeah. you have to get it down and down and down and down. You know? Right. And, right. And it's just that sentence level, taking the joy in the sentence level writing too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Sentence level and the paragraph level. And you really have to love it. And if you don't, then I don't know, then I don't, I don't know that people can, can do that. Yeah. Why would you do it if you don't love really, it? Yeah. And I really don't understand how people do this whole, like writing a book a year thing that I just, I'm <laughs> confounded. I'm just, yeah. yeah. Well, they're not, they're not writing. I mean, this is a, you know, this is a really, they're not writing this kind of depth. 
because you can't get to this kind of depth. I don't think in, I mean, people are doing it. I mean, people are all different. So I'm not going to say that's not fair to say nobody can do it. But I do think that that it's evident from reading this that there's so much in it, so much of your time and yourself and your energy and so much rewriting. I know you, I know you've done, I know you've torn this thing apart nine times and put it back together 11. So, um, and I, it was, and I actually, I'm glad, I don't think I ever really read any of it. We talked a lot about it, but I never really read any substantial pieces. So when I got to sit down with it, even though I feel like I knew a lot, I didn't know really anything. And so it made it for such an incredibly beautiful, fresh read. And I loved it, Angie. I love, love, loved it. And I loved the Miracle Creek. Yeah. I really love Miracle Creek, but I, I, I love this one more even. I think, I mean, I mean, I feel the same way too. So that makes me, that makes me happy. And they're, they're different. Um, of course. Like seven POVs. And this one has one very voicey um, POV. Yeah. Um, so I can see why some, if you don't like the voice, then I can see people being like, uh, this yeah. kind of yeah. sucks that I wish, you know, because well, yeah. if you have seven and you don't like one of the characters or one of the voices, you have an escape, you know, yeah. you, you be like, okay, all right, I'll go through, I'll get through that chapter just because, but yeah. I can't wait to come back to so-and-so or whatever. And yeah. here, and if you don't like Mia, then you're- And we, we know this from publishing books. Like not everybody likes- everything and people yeah. are not necessarily very kind when they don't like things right. and I think one of the things we can put into the universe here on air is that it's it's totally fine if you hate a book that is absolutely prerogative we've all read things we did not like you don't need to share your opinion I think that's where you can just like like keep it to yourself so that's my personal <laughs> opinion from having read too many one stars on my own books um but you oh. know better you know better than to re be reading those right now. I hope you were just filtering out the five stars. Yeah, I Angie, come there. on. I yeah, I do that with Miracle Creek now, but it took me a while. I know. I feel like I do feel like there's something, and I I was defending myself um, to my marketing team too. They're like, Angie, stop it! And I was like, No, mm. no, no, guys, I really because like for example, and this is interesting for us to be think talking about here because um of the genre question like a lot of people on goodreads were like well you know i don't understand why they made it sound like um it was like a mystery thriller thing because it's like it's kind of slow for that on the other hand a lot of people are like yeah this is a great mystery so i it's it's been really interesting to sort of read those and to be like you know what guys i think we need to position this more as literary fiction and mm -hmm. so that's how like amazon is categorizing it that's how book of the month club categorized it yeah um, congratulations that, on that yeah not yeah, thank you yeah not to say that the mystery you know like suspense thriller elements aren't there like i love that in my own reads and of yeah. course i wanted that here and there were red herrings and lots of cliffhangers right. and all that kind of stuff that i love right but at the same time to sort of say you know if you're the kind of person who only reads that and doesn't yeah love complicated family dramas doesn't right. like fiction then uh, maybe maybe try the sample page chapter before you buy it right yeah. right but I mean, right. And I think that's right. I think people, you know, we are used to 
especially I think in today's day and age, we like list of thrillers, you pick one, it's all going to, you know, they're all, they have a very similar style or vein. It's fast. It's, you know, and this has got, like you said, it has all of the, it has all the parts of any mystery thriller. Um, it just, right. It just is not, that's not sort of the, the bulk of it. It's just a, it's just a big part of it. So anyway, there's always going to be those people. And I, I think, um, you, could, you know, we know you're going to get to the point where you're only making the five-star reviews. Yes. In the meantime, I hope, you know, maybe you give those to your husband to sort out the, the funny one stars instead of the, you know, the mean one stars. Yeah. Yeah. The mean ones. Yeah. Or the people, or there are people who believe that, um, people like my non-speaking students aren't really spelling on their own. Yeah. Yeah. How they see that because they're they're moving their own hands. Like, I don't, right. what, like, I think they think that it's when they see it on videos and stuff that it must be doctored, but you know, yeah. like sitting in. Well, you address, and you address that. I mean, you address yeah. the fact that there are people out there who are making it look like, and that that's, I mean, those charlatans are, are so destructive to the family that is working so hard with their non-speaker, but but yeah, that's not, I mean, there's always, you know, yeah, doubters, but I understand. I mean, they've obviously not probably dealt with, or they haven't, you know, they dealt with a non-speaker who really is a non-speaker and there are those people too. So not everybody is going to be, you know, become, be able to be, become somebody who can communicate, which I think is probably hard, but yeah, so there's all, there's always the, the, the doubters and whatnot, but um, I am so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm so, so proud of you. And I loved, loved, loved this book. And I want to go back to the beach when I'm ready to start my new book and we can um, dig back in. I got to get Christina on the hook. So yeah, um, I was going to say, maybe we should get the host to um, be okay with that plan. <laughs> right. We have a, right. We have a, an incredible spot in Ocean City, but neither of us owns it. So we need to talk to the third writer who is, yes, who is exactly. that person. So yes. I know you have to go and so give time crunch, but I wanted um, everybody, seriously, this is, a, I really was just such a powerful book, Angie. I love knowing enough about it and the journey that you went through to feeling like I had, you know, I had a back, a side seat to everything that was going on. And um, it's an incredibly beautiful book. So please, martinis every night, forget the everything else and, and, and enjoy this moment of, you know, success, right? Because the hard work is going to start again in like a nanosecond. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And everybody, oh, sorry, what? No, I just said I'm so excited. Yeah. Yes, it's so exciting. It's really, really exciting. So, and thank you everyone who joined us for Killer Women today with Angie Kim. I'm Danielle Gerard. I'll see you next time. Bye.